Now, this week, we are diving back into our series, our short summer series, on theater and theology, where we look at some of Hollywood's biggest movies and try to delve into them to pull out biblical truths and themes. Now, that tagline is a little off this week, because this week, we're not really looking at a movie, we're looking at a Netflix short series. We're looking at the 2018 Haunting of Hill House. Now, before we dive in, I just want to make sure, I just want to reassure you, I'm not going to show any scary scenes. There are some terrifying scenes in this, and I'm not going to show any of those. So, D, you're good. <laughs> so, this series is based off of a 1959 American Gothic horror novel by Shirley Jackson. In the book, a professor gets a, we'll call them volunteers, we'll be generous and call them volunteers, to come have an extended stay at the haunted, supposedly haunted Hill House. His intent is to study the mental and emotional anguish living in a haunted house does, and then just shenanigans ensue from there. This series takes a completely different direction, kind of keeps the central theme, but it's a completely different story. In our series, it revolves around the Crane family. And it is set in two different timelines. In the modern timeline, the Crane's family has been brought back together because of the death of their youngest sister, Nell. And in the, the, you know, this timeline really involves them and their elderly father really wrestling with her loss and confronting decades of repressed drama and repressed emotions. The past timeline is about the family's summer in Hill House. Their father is a house flipper, so he comes into houses, decrepit houses, builds them up, flips them, sells them for more money, moves on to the next one. This one is his golden goose. He is saying if he can build this one up, they can make enough money that he might not have to work again. Now, before we go too far into the themes and such here, I want to get us to have our kind of biblical background so we can kind of use that as our springboard going forward. So before I show the first clip, could I have Madeline come up and read our passage for us? So our passage is going to be from Luke 12. And I'll just creepily go back Should here. Should I do the microphone? Or yeah, go ahead and do the mic. Yeah. Uh, can you guys hear me? Okay. Uh, and do not set your heart out on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you his king the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that would never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Perfect, thank you very much. All right, so in this section, Jesus is really kind of framing things around the idea of worrying about earthly treasures and the desire for gaining what you want or what you think you want or need. And he gives really two pithy statements that I think epitomize this idea and kind of bookend it. So the first is, seek these things and the king, or excuse me, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you. And then he follows that up with where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think these two commands are interesting because they're really hitting at the same thing, the same idea. 
mainly that our desires should be first and foremost for the kingdom of God. That this will lead, the, in the lead up to this passage, Jesus talks about how our God is a wonderful God and how he pours out so much rich blessings on the flowers and the birds. And so how much more does God love us? So our God wants to take care of us. But our primary driving force shouldn't be chasing after those things. It, should be, should, it shouldn't be chasing after kind of things we see around us. It should be trying to make the kingdom of God come around us. I, I have a friend of mine who kind of sums up their entire theology with the idea that our job is to make up there, down here. Like, that's it. And I don't think they're wrong. That is it in a nutshell, really. So this first command is really getting at the idea. It's starting with the heart. It's saying, if you focus on the kingdom of God, then these tangible things, they'll come in too. But focus on the kingdom of God. The second statement kind of takes the opposite direction. It starts with the tangible and then leads that into desire and heart. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is Jesus saying, show me a person. Show me what they treasure. Show me what they want most. And I'll show you where their heart is. I'll show you where their desires are. It's going to be in those things. Now, take these two in combo. And we get this kind of cool cyclical pattern of how it things should be. Jesus desires for us to have our treasure be in God, be in himself, be in Christ. If we treasure God and put our stock in Jesus, then that'll be where our heart is. And then, then our heart will be seeking the kingdom of God. Then we'll get, then we'll get the tangible things. You, you see the nice pattern, this nice cycle that's formed here, right, right? This is the ideal cycle and situation, right? This is what we're aspiring to. How often does that not really play out? And so we're going to see an example of how this really doesn't play out. Uh, we're going to watch our first scene. And this scene is set in the then, the past timeline with the kids. And this scene is, revolves around one of the daughters, Shirley, talking with their mom about the future, their future plans. All right, so we can see the main idea of the scene is the forever house. And this is a, a theme that permeates the entire series. It really is what drives the mother. And as we see, it, as we'll see later on, it's really what drives Shirley in her life. But this is a dream that never happens. Because within just a few short weeks of this scene, the mother dies under suspicious and kind of mysterious circumstances. The Forever House never comes to be. The closest we get is this little model that sits in the adult Shirley's office. Now, on the surface, there, there's nothing wrong with the idea of, of a Forever House, right? That's a common thing. Everyone, most people think about it. Well, I know Christine and I talk about what we want in our Forever House. There's 100% going to be a sliding bookshelf with a room behind it, hidden office room, absolutely, yes. So, like, nothing wrong with that idea. But notice how it's already starting to take hold of the mother. When Nell comes and asks to play, to have a tea party, the mom says she can't because she has busy working. We just saw her. She wasn't working. She was drawing and thinking about the forever house. That's not work. The idea of the forever house is already starting to take a hold of her 
so much so that she's ignoring her daughter just so she can sit, think about it, plan for it. Do you kind of see the irony there? That for her, the, the idea of the forever house is them coming together. You know, I see a family coming in from three different sides into, into the kitchen, in, 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 into the dining room. She's having this idea of the forever house so she can spend time with her family, but she's ignoring time with her family now to think about the idea of it later. So in her heart, the, the forever house has become the treasure, not what it represents, the tangible aspect of the forever house. That's what's kind of starting to take root in her heart. Oh, cute picture of Shirley when she comes to ask for tea. One of the most adorable child actors I have ever seen right now, but adorable, all right. So that's, we're kind of setting up some stuff here. Now, the series is called The Haunting of Hill House, and thus far we have not talked about the titular Hill House. Um, and I would argue this is really the main character of the book and the series, so I'll read the opening paragraph of the book for you. Hill House stood by itself against the hills, holding darkness within. It had stood there for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within walls contained upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there always walked alone. How's that for, set, for like setting the scene for something? I, I think it's interesting in you know, books about kind of spooky houses, the house is both the scene and a character, so it has some interesting play going on here. So as the story unfolds, we slowly learn that Hill House is almost alive. It, it has qualities of a living thing. And like a lot of living things, it needs to eat. It needs substance. It needs food. What does a creepy haunted house eat, you might ask? Human emotions, human souls, human life. The house has an ever-growing collection of trapped spirits in the house, trapped ghosts within the house. It slowly seduces and lures people into a false sense of security, and before they know what's happened, they're trapped, unable to escape the confines of Hill House. Does this sound like a biblical character, maybe? Someone else? Maybe someone that First Peter describes as prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour? Someone who wants nothing more than to collect souls for themselves, to trap them, shielded away from all means of joy and happiness forever. Someone whose name simply means the adversary, the one who stands against us. So I would argue that yes, the story in the story, Haunting of Hill House, Hill House is the physical representation of the devil. Satan, Hasatan, the enemy. Side note, this is one of the reasons why I love horror, is you can kind of do things like this. They can give us parable-like representations of kind of these hard to grasp ideas. And this is one of the like, most powerful ones I've seen recently. The idea that this house is representing the devil and is using means that the devil uses. Now, there's one more thing about this house we need to kind of touch on before we move on. 
Inside the house, right in the middle of it, there is a room that seemingly no one can get into. The children have come to call it the red room because of its bright red door. Try as they might, no one can get into the red room. No key is found that'll open it. No amount of bashing it breaks it down. And it does not appear on any blueprints of the house. Based on the layout of everything, this room should not exist. Yet it's right there. But they can't get into it. Keep that in your head. We'll get back to the red room soon. So how do things play out for the Crane family over their summer holiday in Haunted Hill House? As you can guess, probably not well. The mother becomes more and more obsessed with the forever home. She starts drawing it on absolutely everything she sees. At one point, she, she is a blueprint artist. At one point, she is to draw a master plan of Hill House and just draws the forever house over and over and over again. It's starting to seep into her. The house has picked up on this and it is using this obsession, this desire of her heart against her. It's using it to feed on her. Things come to a head one chaotic night when the father is forced to make a choice. Save his wife from Hill House or save his children from his wife. In the end, he takes the kids and he runs. Despite his efforts to come back to try to save his wife, she does not survive the night. She becomes the latest victim of the house, the latest soul claimed by the adversary. Now, fast forward to the present time, to the stuff set now. The father and the remaining children are gathered together mourning the loss of the youngest crane child, little Nell, that adorable little child actor we saw earlier. For reasons beyond them, she returned to the long abandoned hill house. One night she shows up there and she follows in her mother's fate. She dies inside of the house. Fueled by sadness, anger, grief, a litany of emotions, the family goes to the house seeking answers. But the house is ready for them. The house attacks each one of them in turn. It attacks them by showing them visions of what they want most in the world, enticing them to just simply stay put. And each one of them gladly would have stayed in the house to slowly be eaten by it, had it not been for the soft voice of their youngest sister, Nell. This voice penetrates each and every one of the visions they're being shown and leads each and every one of them into the present state. Now we pick up right after all these visions have happened. They wake up inside the red room now. So in prepping for this, I watched kind of that scene a number of times trying to get the exact edit down I want. And every time it got me up a little bit, little tear almost every single time, still got me. So the much sought after red room was actually a room they spent so much time in and didn't know it. It's like a kind of evil room of requirement, if you want to think about it that way. This was the room that was the house's greatest weapon. It was the room that was using against them the most. It lured them in by tempting them with exactly what they wanted. 
with what their heart's desire was. And then it fed on each and every one of them. Though the designs of its attack were different, it was a different room, dance studio, game room, reading room, its intent was the same. Slowly eat their emotions away. Slowly, slowly attack them until they didn't know what was going on and it was too late. Trying to trap their souls within their ever-growing collection. Had it not been for the swift and divisive actions of the father in the past, the children all would have died in the house. They wouldn't have made it to adulthood. Later on in the, the, this episode, which I can't show because he's talking to a creepy ghost, so too scary to actually show, the father talks about himself standing at the door, keeping the demons at bay, keeping them away from his children, shielding them. And in the end, the, the adult children only make it out of the house because the father sacrifices himself, gives himself to the house so that the children can get out. The father gives himself up so that the children might have a means of escape, might escape the jaws of the house. We'll ask again, can you think of another father who has been willing to do this? Can we think of someone else who has been willing to sacrifice themselves so that their children might have a means of escaping the jaws of the evil one? And so in a funny way, the Haunting of Hill House might be the most ghost-filled retelling of the gospel story ever. In the story, Hill House reminds us that there is a great adversary out there. And there's an ad this is an adversary that wants nothing more than to devour our souls, to trap us forever away from anything good. This is an adversary that will do whatever it takes to do this. This is an adversary that is looking, that will look different to each and every one of us. This is an adversary that will use the desires of our heart to tempt us. But our Heavenly Father gave us a way out. Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could escape, so that we would not be forever trapped in the house of darkness and despair. And what's more, Jesus pulled himself back out of the house of darkness and despair. Remember, as we sang earlier, remember what Calvary bought for me. What Calvary bought for us was a way out. So if we can make Jesus the treasure of our heart and our true heart's desire, that's the one thing the adversary cannot use against us. Faith, trust, hope in anything else will ultimately lead to us being trapped. But Jesus gave us that chance. Jesus gave us a way to not be trapped by the adversary. And that way was him. So if we can put our faith 
and genuinely put our treasure in Jesus, then yes, we will not have to worry about the things of this world that will be taken care of. But more importantly, the things of the next world will be cared for. We will be protected in this world and into the next. Our souls will be protected forever and held safely in the palm of his strong hand. Join me as we pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity you've given us to gather. But above all, we thank you for the sacrifice that was Jesus. That Jesus provided us a way out. Provided us a means to not be devoured by the adversary. By the devil. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just give us that passion, that burning desire in us that we constant daily reminder that we have a way of escape. We have a way out, and that way is through you. So we just ask that you would continue to follow us, continue to guide us, continue to let that guide us forward, that burning love and desire for you, and to share that escape, that way out with others. We ask that as we continue to worship, Lord, that you would be with us. In your precious name, amen.